So as you guys know, we have been walking through Psalm 23 in this series entitled The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd, looking at this incredibly historic and famous poem um, that the shepherd king of Israel, famous King David, wrote um, about his God. And he, he writes it from this metaphor and this perspective of being a, God being a shepherd and David being his sheep. David's writing this psalm from personal experience with the role of a shepherd. He himself was a shepherd to sheep, and so he knew what went into that role to actually be a faithful and good shepherd. But he also, from his role in shepherding, he came to develop a great understanding of the nature of sheep. And so kind of this twofold understanding that David has writing this psalm, and it's this beautiful metaphor first about our relationship with God. And and it leads us even further when we look at the person of Jesus, who in John 10 tells us, he says to his disciples, I am the good shepherd. And so we're looking at in this study we've been doing, this little series, we've been looking at um, who Jesus is as our good shepherd and what is it what does it mean and, and what does it look like to experience life under his care, right? So we've hoped for more than just like Bible knowledge to come out of this series. Like, you know, you're going to encounter some environment a few more times in your life where you will have people reading Psalm 23. You'll go to a memorial service or whatever it may be. Um, and what we, re- what we really want as a church is not just to be people that know more about Psalm 23 than everyone else. You know, like, oh, we did a study. We know about the shepherd, okay? You, know, you ain't got nothing on what I know. Like, that's not what we're going for. What we really want is to experience what Jesus promised us as his followers. He describes this, this relationship. When he's our shepherd, we get to know his voice, right? And we are known by him, and we follow him intimately and personally. And so that's really what we're going for. I think as we're studying through this, it's always good to be evaluating. Man, as we're learning, are we also experiencing? Is this starting to become something that we are experiencing? Things like, we looked at um, the first verse a couple weeks ago. We looked at this declaration where David says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want. It's this expression of fullness, of contentment. Like after you eat a good meal, and you're full to the brim, like you want to, I just, like I just said, Brittany's in California at In-N-Out, I got my spots, and you know, it's that feeling of someone offering you food after you ate, and you're like, I shall not want anything. I, I don't know if you ever felt that way, where for me, I've, I've eaten too much, so much, to the point where I've been like, I'm fasting for the rest of my life, I'm never eating again. Um, contentment, that's the first thing David says, when God is your shepherd, there's contentment. So are we experiencing that in our understanding of God? Is there a contentment in life? He goes on to say in verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. It speaks of the care of a shepherd to make sure that his sheep are at rest. It was St. Augustine who said, our souls are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. And so are we experiencing a restfulness in our relationship with God? Or is there a weariness? Um, Then he goes on to say, we looked last week, at he leads me beside the still waters. And I just have to say this real quick about last week. Some of you guys weren't here last week because you were serving at our Pumpkin Patch Festival face painting outreach. Can we just give a hand to all of our awesome volunteers that were there last Sunday? Thanks for that. We are going to, I just want to say, 
just a word here. We are going to reevaluate the hours and the length of the shifts that people serve on so that you're not face painting for four hours next year. That's our hope. A few more volunteers, shorter shifts. Anyway, nonetheless, thank you so much to everybody who was there last week. Just wanted to say that, put that word in there. But last Sunday, um, we actually we had some technical difficulties with the audio recording, but we looked at this next half of verse 2, which says that he leads me beside the still waters. And this speaks of a shepherd's care to ensure that his sheep are led to a proper drinking source because sheep won't drink from rushing streams. They need to be led beside still waters. They freak out and get scared and run away when the water's going down. They won't drink. So this talks about God's special care to provide for our thirst. God does it as well. In John 7, we saw Jesus invite anyone who was willing Actually, in anyone who is thirsty, that was the, the prerequisite to coming to Jesus to be satisfied is you, you have to be thirsty. You have to recognize your longing and your need to be satisfied. And he promised us in John 7 that if we come to him, that he would pour out his spirit on us. And his spirit would be the satisfying water that would quench the deepest thirst we have. Amen? And so that's what we've been doing, just kind of walking through. And, and really, I think we could have entitled this, this series in Psalm 23, you know, seeing Jesus in the shepherd's psalm, because he is on every thought in every verse. Now, this morning, I want us to focus on the first half of verse 3, where in David describing his shepherd's care for his own life, David says this. He says, God, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. So the title of my message this morning is appropriately soul <laughs> restoration. Soul restoration. What does it mean and what does it look like to experience the restoration of our souls when God comes into our life? So let's pray and we'll get into that today. Soul restoration. Lord, um, we thank you that you're here. We just thank you already for, not just for what you're doing, what you've done, but just who you are. Thank you, Lord, that despite who we are today, despite where we are today, God, you are the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. What a, what a great hope we have to know that you don't change. So we want to lean into that today. We want to lean into who you are. We want to be attentive and aware, God, of, of what your character is, God, so that we don't have to be moved. So that though our circumstances change, God, we don't have to change because you don't change and you're our rock. So we come to you today, God, our rock, our salvation, Jesus, our Savior, our shepherd. And we pray that you would reveal more of who you are and specifically, Show us today, God, how you are a restorer. And we ask for this to be more than a Bible study. We pray, God, that you would truly be our shepherd who restores our soul. Help me, God, teach your word. I need your help to do that. I am physically tired. I pray you'd give me strength. I pray you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit so that all of us here, God, wouldn't have to just hear from Andrew. We want to hear from you. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I told you that this weekend, Brittany's on a trip with Aaron and Penelope to California. What I didn't tell you, some of you guys also know, is that I just got back from my own trip 
our, our own boys' trip that Judah and I and my dad took to the great land of Maine. Nowhere like it, especially if you're from South Florida. Um, literally on opposite ends of the eastern seaboard there, the eastern country, and also opposite ends of the climactic spectrum, climat, climate spectrum, climactic too, different kinds of experiences of a climactic. <laughs> In every way, Maine is different. It's beautiful, beautiful. We got to go there at peak foliage time. It was our third year in a row going. My uncle, he's got a nice lake house up there, so nice to have family in main places. And uh, he's got this really cool cottage that we visited now three years in a row. This year, it was kind of unsure, you know, do we go? When you have three kids, you really start to evaluate, is the travel worth the vacation? Or am I going to need a vacation from the travel? Um, and so, you know, at three now, it was one of those things where it's like, well, it's a short trip. It's only going to be, we're going to fly out. So we flew out Sunday. We were, uh, got back. We planned to get back Thursday. And so it was a full three-day trip. And so we were like, it was the third year. We were like, you know, maybe this year is not the year we sit out Maine. And, and, uh, but Brittany was like, no, go take Judah. And it turned out to be a cool father-son, father-son trip. So it was a really good time. Right, Dad? It was fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Um, and uh, me, my dad, and Judah got to go. Judah got to experience a bit of the outdoors, got to go fishing a bit. Um, we got to see, I was teaching him about this thing called fall leaves, this whole new science that he's learning. It's foreign to him here, in which you either have leaves or dead leaves in Florida. You don't have fall leaves, you just have leaves or dead leaves. Um, so it was an awesome trip. And, you know, like I said, so Brittany's now gone this weekend, so we kind of, I guess we broke even. Just kidding. That's a horrible way to to do a marriage. Don't do it that way. But uh, we kind of, we had our guys trip and then we had the girls trip. One of the things that we did, we did so many awesome things when we were up there. But one of the things that we did, which um, if you told me I would be doing this 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, but if you told me that I would be going to an antique thrift shop (laughs) to pass my time, while I was in Maine for only three days. I would look at you like you're crazy. I would think that you're crazy, um, but we did. We went to, there's this antique barn, the, and it's kind of middle, or not, um, it's a small town America up there in the Northeast, and they got these really cool, um, like just the small businesses, and they have this one antique, kind of antique and thrift barn that we went to. We went there to look for a gift for Brittany. Uh, we had known about this spot because we had gone years in the past, um, but I was actually excited to go. Now, this is something new in my heart, definitely new. It's something that's come with time and age. I've developed and matured as a man to love antique shops, you know. Um, <laughs> definitely something different than my childhood and my past. Like, one of the greatest dreads of my childhood was, you know, part of the cost of my family's vacations growing up. We would go to uh, Polly's Island in South Carolina a lot as kids and do our family trips there. And, and it was, you know, as your kids, it's a free vacation. You don't pay for anything. You know, your parents do. But um, there was one form of payment that we would have to make while we would go on these vacations, and it was to endure the endless hours of my mom's antiquing and thrifting and shop to shop, place to place. And uh, my mom was really, really big into antiquing. Anybody remember the antique road show? Remember that show? Anybody watch that show where people come and they present either what's just a dud, and it was like, no, that's not old, that's not valuable, or that sometimes people on this show, they present, you know, uh, antiques that are 
uh, hundreds of years old and worth thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars. Um, but I was on those trips as a kid, and I was a lot like Judah when we went this past week to the antique shop. Um, as a five-year-old, you walk into an antique shop, and you're like, why are we here? This should just be a garbage stop is what it should be. Why is this a store? Why are we here buying people's old stuff when we could go to a store and buy new stuff, right? Um, and so for Judah, like me as a kid, he, when we go to antique stores, he's just looking for the toys. Like, where are the toys? And we got to be careful. Like, yeah, that's a toy, but that's like a $200 toy. I know it's a little piece of wood <laughs> carved into like a bottle opener, but um, it's not a toy, first of all, Judah. Um, but don't play with that, you know? Now, over time, I, and I get it, I understand where Judah's at, kind of that feeling, but I think over time, I've really, definitely through the influence of my wife, I've really grown to see the appeal of antique shops. And let's just do this. Is there anybody in the room who's a self-proclaimed fan of antique shops? Do we have them? We got a couple here. Okay, thrift shops. Anybody go to thrift shops? A couple of you guys? Okay, Macklemore, what's up? All right, thrift shop. All right. Now, growing up, again, it was like very difficult for me to, to grasp the, 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 the reason for why you would do this. But I think as I've grown, I've understood. I've understood why there's such a market for the old being sold in the modern time. And it's this. It's the vision or the value of a vision for how something that's old could be restored and made new. I mean, that's what you really get to see when you go to an antique shop or a thrift store. There's something appealing about this thing was garbage. This thing was old. This thing was thrown out. This thing was trash. But through it being restored, through restoration, one man's trash becomes another man's what? Treasure. And maybe you have some stuff in your house like that. Something that was or should have been at the garbage dump, something that should be at the Solid Waste Authority right now, but you had a vision for that old, dead, dilapidated thing becoming new. And you restored it, and now it has its place of pride in your home. My uncle's house is a lot like that in Maine. It's a lot of these old antiques that we would pass by at the garbage dump or at the, the front of, you know, someone's yard. You ever had someone put out something just there at the yard? And you're like, how are they, you know, how are they throwing that out? That's kind of what my uncle's done. And so his, his uh, cabin is filled with these antiques that he has repurposed, he has restored, and it's become new again. Now, that's what David is talking about here. He uses the word in reference to God as a God who restores I want to give a definition about restoration. Here's what restoration, this word in the Hebrew, it literally means. Restoration is to make a linear motion back to a point that's been previously departed. To make a linear motion back to a point that's been previously departed. And for those of you who are like into repurposing and restoring old stuff, you understand that's what you're going for. This is a product, or it's a piece of furniture, or it's an, it's an antique that has departed from its original form, but you're making a motion with it back to a point of newness, point of life. Um, in our culture today, it, it makes sense why restoration sells. It sells. 
right? This is such a, I feel like a, a marketable idea, the, just, just products of restoration, that today not only do you have antique shops, which are selling old things that you can make new, but it, I, it's like just, I just, it's just capitalist corporate America. When you see the new product that people sell and they purposely made it old. Have you seen this stuff? So people will buy old jeans, weathered, restored, you know? It's like $200, right? Or they'll buy like, uh, you know, today, you know, instead of like maybe getting a piece of like reclaimed wood and doing it yourself, they'll like sell brand new wood and someone will have painted it to make it look old. Restoration sells. I think one of the greatest evidences of of something of restoration selling is rest in peace the um, the great show that I think is a gift from God to bring us deeper into an understanding of Him and what marriage should look like. Um, <laughs> been having a hard time, guys. Um, it's been what a year or so. The fixer uppers been off the air. Um, an HGTV classic. Chip and Joanna, goals for sure, young dating couples, okay, recently retired. If you're not familiar with Fixer Upper, why? No. Um, (laughs) So the show about this awesome married couple, they love Jesus, and their business is they go into old, dilapidated, dead, trash-style places, and with a nice conservative budget in Waco, Texas. You can get a lot in Waco, Texas. You can buy a closet in South Florida for what you can get as a home in Waco, Texas. But they take these people's tiny budgets. Man, I would love to. Let's move to, you guys want to move to Waco, Texas? Let's do it, all right? And they're able to restore these homes. Here is a, one of the most iconic. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this episode. They called this the shotgun house, one-bedroom house. The couple bought it for 26 thousand dollars sorry twenty eight thousand dollars in 2016 chip and joanna Gaines come in and they completely restore this property it's a whole new home it's kind of like one of those tiny houses but one bedroom home we'll call it that um look at the transformation that this home went through i mean it was dead it was nothing it was it was broken but there was this vision we'll keep going back to that there was a vision for how what was old could become new how it could come back to life, how it could be restored, how it could, we talked about restoration was this moving back to this point of what it came from. Um, And you see this, this picture, brand new home. Now, you ready for this? I said in 2016, this house was sold for 28,000. They bought it for 28,000. After the renovations, the the value of the home went up to 139,000. It's currently on the market for $950,000. I'm sure the fact that Chip and Joanna Gaines renovated it has a little bit to do with that near million dollar price tag. But what a great picture of something that was dead, something that was worthless, now being something through restoration that has become worth much more than anybody ever anticipated restoration sells. I think, I think there's a reason, though. I think the reason why we buy new products that were made to look old, I think the reason why we watch Fixer Up, or the reason why we frequent antique shops and thrift stores on a man trip to Maine, is because deep down, I believe this, we all see and we sense 
that there is something so broken about life. There, there is something dilapidated and old. We, we sense that. We sense brokenness. We, we sense it internally. It doesn't take a sixth sense either. Just common sense leads us to know that I'm not who I'm supposed to be. Common sense should lead you to go, this world is not as it should be. But we love restoration itself because with that sense, I think, also comes this great longing to see things made new. To see what's broken be restored. To see what's dead come to life. To see what's old, again, become new. We all, deep down in our culture, we value dead things coming back to life. And what David is telling us here is that this is who God is. You could say that like Chip and Joanna Gaines, God is in the fixer-upper business. Anybody in here a fixer-upper? Come on. God is in the restoration business. God is in the business of speaking to the valley of dry bones and calling them to life. God is in the business of taking dead spiritual people and making them alive in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that this is what we've all experienced through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we're all fixer-uppers. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. Through restoration, our trash becomes God's treasure. God does this supernatural work in our lives to renew us, to restore us. Remember that definition of restoration? To make a linear motion back to a point previously departed. You can find that point in Genesis chapter 3. Where Adam and Eve, humanity, we departed from the point for which we were created, which was to give glory and honor to God and to enjoy him forever. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every last one of us, we've departed from the point of our purpose. And Jesus is the one who's come to bring us on a linear motion back to that point that we've departed from. That's what the good shepherd is in the business of doing. He'll leave even the 99 righteous sheep to go after the one sheep that's departed that he can bring home. He restores us. He makes us new again. So much so that the old has passed away. And the new has come, one translation says. The new is here. Uh, and we also know this, remember guys, as believers, this is our security. This is something that has happened. Okay, Jesus has restored us through the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus bore our brokenness so that we could be whole. This is a reality. This isn't always something we feel, by the way. The Bible doesn't say to feel this. This isn't something, we, we don't walk by feeling in this. We walk by faith in this, Amen. So this is a truth that we need to cling to when we're not feeling it. I've been restored. I've been made new through, through not my efforts, through not my performance. It's not my track record that determines my restoration. It's the cross record. And Jesus bore my brokenness. He broke that bread and he said, this is my body, right? Now, this is a security and a promise and a reality we need to rest in, but it's also a hope that we need to look to. The Bible also talks about this great day, Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, Peter's talking about Jesus' ascension into heaven, and he says that heaven has received Jesus. That's where Jesus is right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he has received Jesus bodily 
until, he says, the restoration of what? Of all things, he says. All things. So as Christians, the good news is that we've been restored, but we also, you know what we bring into this world? We bring this kind of twofold hope. Number one, we bring this hope that you can be made new. You're old, you're broken down, you might feel like trash. The reality is we've all departed from a point, but through Jesus, through the great exchange of the cross and the love of God, you can be brought back, you can be made new, the old can go away and the new could come. But we also bring this hope that one day all things are going to be made new. How many of us are actually resting in that? Because, yeah, I, I, I am my own problem, but then it's also walking through the surrounding problems. It's walking through the, the chaos in our country, the chaos in this world, the chaos in our communities, the, the strain that we experience with this hope that one day Jesus is going to restore it all. And the Garden of Eden is going to pale in comparison to the new heavens and the new earth. Restored, brought back to what? Was. Can I read you Revelation 21? Can you just hear the Lord's word speak to you with this great hope? Listen to this. John writes in Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I love this. Look at this poetic language. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The preparation of restoration for us. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne, here's God stands up and he says, Behold, I Make all things new. Let's just praise the Lord for that reality. Let's give him a hand. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that through your son Jesus, I'm made new. And thank you, God, that I have this hope that this is not how it's always going to be. No more sorrow. I just, I don't know about you, I just can't wait for there to be no more cancer. No more. Cancer is going to be shut up forever. This is our hope. This is our hope. And so we live in what, what we get from the, the idea of Scripture. When it comes to restoration, we live in this narrative of already, not yet, right? Already, God has begun to restore all things, and he's begun with us. It says that we're the first fruits of his creation, James 1 says. So we're, the, we're the, the foretaste of what's to come. When people taste our lives, they should see there's something coming through what I'm seeing in this church. There's this newness that God brings that leads us to look forward to the renewal of all things. It's this already with this hope of not yet. And in between the already and the not yet is where we find ourselves this morning. <laughs> Restored, yep. The hope of restoration, yep. Yet, still being restored. Still got a lot of brokenness. The longer I walk with Jesus, it's not the more awesome I seem to myself. It's the more awesome he seems to me and the more broken I seem to me. The longer I walk with Jesus, I find, as Paul says, there's nothing good in me that dwells but sin. Brokenness. And so notice what David says, Psalm 23, 2. He restores my soul. He restores 
my soul. He doesn't just say, he restored my soul. It's a past event. It's a future hope. No, he speaks about it in this present, ongoing process he restores. Like today, I am in desperate need of him re-restoring me. He restores my, my soul. My soul. Um, the word restore to us, we just kind of unpacked a little bit of what it could mean in our culture. But as David is writing this as a shepherd, he had a specific idea in mind. Remember, everything that David is saying here is coming from the, the background of a shepherd and his sheep. I'm not sure if you knew this, but one of the most primary roles, actually, of a shepherd, aside from caring for and protecting his sheep from outside enemies, is to protect sheep from themselves. And one of the main ways that a shepherd will have to care for his sheep is he will have to ensure that none of his sheep find themselves cast down, cast down, okay? This is certainly a a biblical term, but this is actually a shepherding term. It's called a cast down sheep. And it's common for a pregnant sheep or an overweight sheep or um, a sheep with heavy, what's sheep hair called? Wool. That's it. (laughs) Sheep hair. It's often the weight of a sheep that will cause that sheep as they lie down. God makes us lie down in green pastures, but sometimes we get comfortable. And what happens to a sheep that's lying down is it can very easily become a cast-down sheep, and it's kind of like the life alert, I phone and I can't get up thing. That's literally what happens to sheep. I have a picture for you. This is a cast-down sheep. This is a pregnant sheep who has gone to lay down but now is unable through enough strength in their lower body because of the weight of their upper body. Uh, Oftentimes, most often, it's a pregnant sheep that will find themselves broken, cast down on their back, feet up in the air, and circulation is stopping now to their limbs and gases are building up within their vitals. And it could be in a matter for some sheep, depending on how hot it is, could be hours, some sheep days, but some sheep hours, it's certain death. This is a common cause of sheeps that lose their lives is becoming cast. And so the, the, the job of a shepherd, a good shepherd, okay, will do his best to ensure that that one sheep that's prone to be cast is constantly monitored and is cared for and is restored. And so some shepherds, what they'll do is if they have to go out of town, they'll hire one hired servant, and he's not the shepherd, he's not the stand-in, the hireling who will do his best to watch over your sheep, but shepherds will hire one person, and they'll pay this one person for weeks at a time to just care for the one sheep that's prone to be cast, especially if it's um, with child. And that, the job of that shepherd will be to restore, restore, restore. Restore. Make sure it's on our feet. And so now let's get a whole new understanding of what David is saying here. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. And oftentimes, you know what I find? I find that my mind is being renewed. I find that my life has been revived. I find that I have this hope that my body one day will be resurrected. But I come to church with a smile on my face, yet an unrestored soul. And spiritually, we can find ourselves in the same kind of place where we are 
cast down. No one would know it because we put a fake countenance on. We hide our downcast countenance when we're here, but the reality is we need to be restored. There's a brokenness. In fact, David uses this exact phrase in Psalm 42. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Then he, I love this, he talks to his soul. You ever had to do that? Andrew, get it together, right? Hope in God, Andrew, right? He's talking to his soul. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He's saying, why are you cast down? A cast down soul. Um, this is what God is looking to, we understand this. He's looking to restore. That's what David is meaning. That's what he's saying. David unfolds this a little bit deeper, I think, in Psalm 37 when he talks about how God restores our broken souls. He says, the steps of a good man, and good is italicized, so it's just of a, of a man, are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be, this is huge, utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So this is our security with God as our shepherd. That there's going to be times where our feet are up spiritually. We're, and by the way, all the theology in the world is not able to save us in that moment. Because we're just on our backs, helpless. And we, we can't explain why we're so downcast. And we can't really articulate what caused it, where it came from. But we just know there's something broken in my soul. And the promise of God's word is that God is a good shepherd. And he restores our soul. Like a good shepherd, he watches over our lives. And what he's looking to do is, is though we might be cast down, he wants to make sure that we're not utterly cast down. In other words, we don't die from a brokenness of soul. We don't say, as Job said to his wife, curse God and die. Just give up. But we have a shepherd who upholds us with his hand. He puts us back on our feet. Back on our feet. Our soul. <clears throat> as I said, I think there's many causes of a cast down soul. Um, whatever the cause may be of your cast down soul today, the symptom is always going to be the same. The symptom is often an inability to intimately walk with God. You ever felt like you had an inability to intimately walk with God? It was probably because you were on your back with your feet up in the air. And that's also this picture David gives us. Check this out in Psalm 56. That when God wants to restore our soul, what he's looking to do is to put us on our feet so we can walk with him. He says, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? See, what God wants is for us to walk with him, to talk with him, to know him as Moses knew God as a friend face to face. But oftentimes we find ourselves feet up, back down, unrestored. David would say, come to the good shepherd and let him restore your soul. Let him restore your soul your soul, your soul. I'm not going to split too many hairs over the difference between your soul and your spirit and your mind and your heart and your strength and your body. You know, you have some people who are, they believe it's what's called um, trichotism. Yeah, this trichotomy, trichotism, this idea that at humanity we're a trichotomy. So we are body, soul, spirit, made in the image of God. Um, and in God's image, we, in, in a sense, are, are three in our own essence. We are body, we are soul, we are spirit. Um, we see this listed in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Bible says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you 
completely. Now, this is, we got to start there. Sanctify means to set apart, okay? And what, what, what Paul is hoping for this church is that they would be a set-apart people. Uh, set apart, like uh, you have, like ladies, you have dresses, but then you have like a wedding dress. That's a set-apart dress. I saw some girls look at their guys like, I would love one. No, I'm just kidding, all right? But you have the set apart. Now, God's saying for us as his people, he, he tells us that he is holy. He wants us to be holy. He's set apart. He wants us to be set apart. How does he do that? He sanctifies us. He sets us apart. He makes us different. He makes us unique as he is. But he wants to do it. This is huge. He wants to do it completely. Some of us, we, we're really into the partial behavioral sanctification. So we don't do the bad things we used to do, but we're comfortable carrying around bitterness in our soul. Or, or we don't indulge in what we used to indulge in, yet still in our soul we're very disappointed with God. Or, or you know, I, my behavior is, is night and day to what it used to be, yet in my soul I carry around shame for what I've done. So he wants to sanctify us completely, not just your spirit. He says, but look, God wants to preserve your whole, look at spirit, soul, and body. Spirit, soul, and body. I think the order there is important. First, this idea of your spirit, right? Like, that's important. Your, your spirit is the part of you that comes to life through a relationship with Jesus. You were dead. You've been made alive. Of course, that's not physical. You weren't, maybe you got resurrected physically. I'd love to hear that testimony. But the idea there is there, there was spiritual death, but through Christ, there's come spiritual life. You've been made spiritually alive. Um, your soul is the who that you are. It's the part of you that relates to God and relates to others. Your spirit's been united with Christ, but your soul, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. C.S. Lewis said, it's so famously, right? He said, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Right? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. Uh, we know Genesis 2, right? Come on, you've read Genesis 2. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, a living being. The Hebrew is nefesh. Same Hebrew word as David in Psalm 23. The Lord restores my nefesh, my soul, my being, my life. It's the relatable part of me. It's who I am when God's alone with me. It's my countenance when no one's watching. I mean, what is the real expression of your face? What are you really walking through? That's your soul. And then we see the difference between that and your body. Our bodies are presented as a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12 says. Our earth suits, as I like to think of them. We'll one day receive a resurrected body. In the meantime, our bodies are presented as members of righteousness to Christ. That's what we're seeking to do. But the heart here, remember, is complete sanctification. And for that to happen, I need more than God just being the redeemer of my life and being the, the renewer of my mind. I need God to be the restorer of my soul. I really need him to do that. A lot of us live our Christian life with unrestored souls, constant cast-down souls. Because we've always been taught just Memorize these verses, pray this prayer, and you'll be good. And just, just stop feeling that. Just don't, just ignore that and just smile, you know, and do your best. 
And there's a sense in which, right, and this is kind of a hard, I think, needle to thread sometime, which is like, I know God is calling me to be obedient despite what I feel. But there's a difference between obedience and hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Praise the Lord, brother. This is the day the Lord has made, unfortunately, is what you're saying inside. He wants to restore your soul. It's deeper. It's deeper than what's on the surface. So here's a question for us this morning. In what way today are you cast down on your back with your feet up in the air? In what way has your soul experienced some brokenness? In what way are you enabled and incapacitated to have intimacy with God and others even? In what way do you need God to restore your soul this morning? Now, there are many causes of a cast-down soul. And so many ways that the Lord restores us and puts us back on our feet. I'm not going to give you, uh, for the sake of our time this morning, I'm not going to go through three points in depth, but I want to submit these three up here to you. Because I see these as constant causes of cast-down souls in our community. Not just talking about the church at large, but I see this as a constant cause of of a cast-down soul, at least in my life, too. Um, Disappointment. This has to do with circumstantial difficulty. Discouragement, often because of personal failure. And dysfunction, because of broken relationships. I would wager that there's at least, for all of us in this room, there's at least one of these that is causing our soul to be cast down. Whether it's first disappointment. Disappointment. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? Maybe for you, you haven't been able to really engage with Jesus lately because you've just been sick in your heart. Because you hoped in some kind of outcome. Or maybe you didn't even, see, this is what happens. Sometimes when life hits us, we're not ready for it. We get, you've been T-boned by life. You didn't even know what you were hoping in. But you realize, I was not hoping in that happening. It's like, and the deeper the disappointment, the greater the disappointment, and oftentimes there's the, you, how high your expectation was and that gap between what your expectation was and then what you experienced, it's often the depth of your disappointment. And it makes your heart sick. Having your expectations met in life is, man, it's like a tree of life. It gives you life. But having your expectations dashed having your hope deferred can give you a deathly sickness in your heart. It depends on what the loss is, too. Loss of relationship, loss of possession. Look at the life of Job. You see some great examples there of things that can make a heart really sick. We'll all, we will all experience the sickness of heart that comes from losing a loved one eventually. And it will cause your soul to be downcast. It will hurt you. You'll you'll be disappointed. Um, 
And as you come to Jesus, not only does he heal your hurt, but what God is looking to do is restore our soul. So often what God will do when disappointment is causing my soul to be downcast is he'll lead me to evaluate what is my greatest hope and what am I really hoping in. And that's sometimes what trial can do. Not that it shouldn't hurt, but sometimes when you walk through, when you get T-boned, you know what you do? You go, that was the purpose of my life right there. That's really what I hoped in life. That's the thing that gave me life. Remember Paul said that in Philippians 1.20? He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, we could say that, but the reality is when that thing is taken away, there's other things that we really are living for, hoping in. And what God is seeking to do in those days, I think, is to give us a new perspective in the face of disappointment. He restores our soul, I think, by giving us new eyes to see differently. You know this psalm, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So maybe right now what's happened is as you've kind of gotten T-boned and you've become disappointed and your heart has become sick, what you saw as a setback, God is seeking to create a setup for you to see in a different way. He wants to elevate our perspective. And that's sometimes what, that's what will keep us in disappointment, by the way. It's very hard to get over what you can't see over. It's very hard to get over what you can't see over. But it's amazing how, you know, just even this week taking Judah on the plane, he was just fascinated by like seeing home from a different perspective as we took off. And dad was crying, holding the seat. <laughs> We're good, Judah. Um, he's the one like consoling me on the plane. Anyway but a whole new elevated perspective that gives a whole new attitude, a new look at it. It's been said that um, altitude is often what can determine our attitude, right? That elevated perspective to see differently. I would have lost heart. I would have stayed in this sickness, but God restored my soul. He gave me a new way to see what I'm going through. He, he gave me a greater hope to hope in. Maybe it's not disappointment. Maybe today it's discouragement. Discouragement personal discouragement that has come because of your inability to live a holy life, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to say no to temptation, to lead your girlfriend in righteousness, to lead your family to steward your children in godliness. Personal failure, it produces a sense of discouragement. And this is often the case. I've seen this with discouragement, I think, a lot in our church. Here's what happens. Disobedience happens. It's going to happen today, by the way, guys. We disobey. We, we, fall, we sin. So this will happen. If it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen this week. I mean, you can do all things in Christ, strengthens you, but watch out, okay? Disobedience. Often disobedience leads to this sense of discouragement because you thought you were better than whatever it is you you did. The danger, and here's where the enemy really goes on the prowl, um, and this shepherds will tell you this, the reason why shepherds are always looking to restore cast sheep is because cast sheep are instant prey. And some of us this week, you fell down in sin, you disobeyed, and now you're on your back in discouragement, and what it's led you to do is to disengage from your relationship with God. Disobedience, it leads to discouragement, which leads to disengagement. And the Bible tells us this, do not cast away your confidence. So as Christians, what we have through Jesus is we have 24-7, forever unchanging access to God. Do we know this? 
there is never, through the cross of Jesus, excuse me, through the cross of Jesus, there is never anymore a reason for you to disengage in your relationship with God, even when you disobey. In fact, it's often when you disobey that you need to, dis, to re-engage even more. But some of us are on our backs with our feet up in the air today because of our mistakes. And we've been called to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find help in our time of need. But as we've become cast down, we've also become castaways. We've casted away our confidence. And really the problem there was our confidence was in our ability to follow Jesus not in his ability to lead us. And so we've thrown it away, and this is what happens a lot, especially our guys in this church. As you find yourself struggling with sin, you disengage, and you cast away your confidence, and now you become a castaway. You're alone. You're walking through that thing on your own. And here's what the scriptures would say to us. Proverbs 24, 16 says this about restoration. It says that the godly man may trip seven times. Are you going to get up? The, 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 play, the play is still in motion. I know you dropped the catch, but there's still a runner, and he's coming from second to third. You've got to pick up the ball. You've got to get back in the game, right? Are you going to re-engage? Are you going to allow your discouragement because of your disobedience to lead you to disengage? You're going to cast off your confidence that was really now dependent on your behavior rather than coming boldly to the throne of grace, getting up again. A righteous man falls down seven times. By the way, this is who the church is called to be in this area. Do we know this? Galatians says this, that if a man is overtaken in our church in any trespass, us who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I think because this is, um, I think that you could keep going back to the roots. But I, I think for so many of us, the reason why in the church today there's this constant, like, vicious cycle of condemnation from sin that leads to condemning others when they sin. It's because we don't know God as a shepherd that mostly, listen, when God sees you down on your back, fallen in sin, he doesn't come over your broken down self and give you the ten reasons why you fell. He restores you. He wants to put you back up on your feet. Imagine if someone did that to you. You trip, you fall, and they come up to you and they go, I'm gonna help you up in a second. Here's why you fell. You see that thing right there? You tripped over. Let me tell you why. Here's 10 ways not to trip. You know, you really, you don't focus enough. You really are kind of a lousy walker. It's a lot of things that um, we're not gonna perfectly be as a church. By God's grace, let us not be those kinds of people. Let us make sure that we're the kind of people that when people come in here, when you come in here on Sunday morning and you're on your back and you're discouraged because of sin, let it be the word and the room of grace that you walk into that says to you, listen, Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins so that you don't have to lay there in them any longer. Jesus came out of the grave. You can come out of your grave. Get up. Get back on your feet. Walk with him. Let his grace produce holiness in your life, not your desire to be holy, not your attempts to be holy. We restore such a one with the humility going, there is no brokenness that you could experience that I myself am not prone to as well. 
And lastly, we talk about dysfunction, dysfunction. There's a sense of disappointment that can cause our soul to become cast down. There's discouragement from sin that causes our soul to be cast down. And then there's relational dysfunction, which usually goes the deepest and is often not seen on the surface, but it's bitterness, maybe internally, bitterness in your marriage, bitterness with someone who's maybe passed away, bitterness with someone who's still living but you haven't talked to because we've traded forgiveness with forgetfulness. Forgetfulness will not lead. Just because your mind forgot doesn't mean your soul has. Oftentimes, my soul remembers things my mind. You ever had that happen? Where you're like, I don't know why I'm mad at that person. I can't think of the reason or the cause for what they did. My mind forgot, but my soul remembered. And that's where God wants to restore. How does he restore our soul? He brings us to a place of peace by reminding us of how he's forgiven us. And that forgiveness that he offers us, it, there's power from his spirit to offer that same forgiveness to people around you, even if they have passed away. See, to forgive someone, it's not about forgetting, it's actually about remembering. It's about really looking into the thing that's really harmed you and hurt you and has affected your soul. And you don't realize it, but it's affected the way that you engage with other people now because you have unresolved anger because of a deep root of bitterness. And God wants to restore your soul. He doesn't want to just give you a bunch of verses to memorize. You come to church, you know the routine. He looks to restore your soul. So whether it's disappointment, whether it's discouragement, whether it's dysfunction, whatever it may be today, here's what we need. We need to come to Jesus and ask him to be our restorer. Let's do that right now. As we're just kind of here in this moment, if there's something that God has been speaking to your heart, let's bring it before him now. We're gonna have a time of response. Let's just press into God's presence, knowing that he's here, calling out to him whatever's needed. During this song, let's take a moment to do that. We're gonna sing how great God is. As we're singing that, let's, have a time to reflect. I want to invite up some of our prayer counselors, some of our prayer partners. If you would come to the front of the room during this song, if you want to come forward and pray with someone, let's do that. But let's not move on by forgetting today. Let, let's look into the exact thing that God is looking to restore by bringing it before him. Whether you want to sit in your seat, whether you want to stand, whether you want to kneel, whether you want to go to the back, wherever you have to go physically, most important thing is that you come before God spiritually and you engage with him in this moment. Let's do that together.